With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Defending liberty is never easy, especially in times of crisis when freedom is so often traded away in search of security. Even during the pandemic, we at Spikes will continue to speak up for our principles. We will keep calling for more scrutiny of the authoritarian measures being wielded over us and for more debate on the best way forward. But to do that, we need your help. Spiked is free and it always will be because we want as many people as possible to read our articles and listen to our podcasts. To keep Spiked free, we rely on the generosity of our readers and listeners, particularly those who can give regularly. Even £5 per month can make a huge difference to us. We know it's hard out there for many of you, and now more than ever, but if you support what we do and you can afford to contribute, please do consider making a donation today. To make a donation, just go to spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button in the top right corner. We cannot thank you enough. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week as ever we have Spiked's deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, coronavirus and the culture war, the effectiveness of lockdowns and how celebrities are taking the crisis. The pandemic appears to be disproportionately affecting people of colour. Another victim from an ethnic minority. You cheer as I toil. The mortality rates from COVID-19 may be higher for men, but the pandemic is having devastating social and economic consequences for women. Is this a revolution of women, or are we seeing a crisis of competency by so many male leaders around the world? Some of us might have hoped that the coronavirus crisis would put the culture wars to one side and unite the world in the fight against a vicious disease. But instead, identity politics and the culture wars are thriving. In the UK, the Metropolitan Police warns about potential spikes in COVID-based racial hate crime. The London Mayor, Sadiq Khan, says there's an injustice in the disproportionate number of minorities getting ill from the virus. In the US, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says the corona crisis must be viewed through the lens of reparations for black and brown communities. The UK media complain about the lack of women in the corona press briefings, and the US media complain that Trump's task force has too many white men. So Tom, what does this crisis and the response to it tell us about the culture wars? I think it tells us that it's not going anywhere, you know, certainly not without a concerted effort to defeat a lot of these, these ideas. There was this tendency at the start of this crisis of people kind of of all political persuasions and of all, you know, p people involved in all kinds of political battles to assume and kind of hope that coronavirus would kind of settle whatever argument that they were involved in, that it would, you know, either mm. bring down capitalism or bring down Brexit or bring down globalism or indeed bring down the culture wars and identity politics. 
and you can kind of understand why that might you might see a case for that in relation to the culture war and identitarianism insofar as when you're faced with this very serious like global pandemic is the usual kind of like identitarian wittering about cultural appropriation or whatever surely the triviality of that is going to be put into sharp relief but as we've seen it's gone on you know there was a controversy this week about a group of nurses in England who put up a video of them doing a hacker and ended up taking it down after a backlash over cultural appropriation. So this stuff is obviously <laughs> not dying hard. And as you say, more importantly, it's colouring a lot of the very high-level discussions that we're having about the crisis from people like Sadiq Khan or AOC or anyone. You know, it's not just a kind of more Twitter spats that we're talking about here. In a way, I think part of it is the fact that whilst, as a lot of people have said, you know, identity politics often feels like a kind of a product of the level of comfort a society takes on on some level. You know, if you develop to a certain level materially, if socially you've sorted out a lot of these battles that these people tend to be quite interested in, they do just end up having to have them in more ridiculous kind of ersatz forms. But I think one of the things that the crisis has shown us is that, you know, as we've seen it, it doesn't affect people equally. And so a lot of the people who would be, you know, raging against cultural appropriation, they're just at home under house arrest with more time yeah. on their hands than usual to talk about these things. I suppose that's a slightly pat answer. But more importantly, and Frank Frady made this point in a piece on Spike recently is that we need to recognize how entrenched this kind of way of viewing the world is you know it's something which is almost part of people's like lived experience by this point it's how they understand the world around them it's how they even mm. try to understand pandemics in the in the face of evidence that doesn't quite stack up so you see them making claims like this is a gendered crisis um, in relation to women despite the fact that it disproportionately affects men you see these kinds of things because it has that kind of dogmatic tendency to it so i think what it tells us about the culture war is that you can't just have a kind of political win delivered to you by fate. You still have to make those arguments. Um, and I think that's more and more important because, you know, how we view this crisis now we move past it is really important. And putting a lot of this nonsense to one side seems to me to, would be quite a positive thing, but we can't just expect it to happen. It's something that you actually have to have to advocate and fight for. Yeah, that's right. And um, one of those interesting splits has been around, obviously, lots of non-essential services and non-essential shops have been closed. So the battle over what is essential then becomes politicised in, in quite an interesting way. So, you know, New Jersey's Democratic governor made a point of declaring gun shops non-essential, whereas the Republicans in Texas and Mississippi decided to use the crisis to limit abortion services as non-essential. Vice magazine is very upset that lots of kind of trans surgery has been postponed with uh, hospital beds being taken up in favour of coronavirus victims. So instead of, you know, putting what we might see as these kind of minor grievances to the side, it's actually people have really had to fight perhaps even more to get their issues onto the table um, in the middle of this global pandemic. Um, Ella? That was particularly the case in the UK with many journalists complaining about the fact that there weren't any women leading the press briefings for a while. And despite the fact that they actually had several very high profile women on, be they medical experts or scientific officers and all this stuff, it wasn't good enough. And it was just so completely out of step with the rest of the country because really at no point did I care actually even who was saying it, whether it was Rob or Gove or Johnson, I cared what they were saying and everyone's yeah. hanging on the content. You know, when is lockdown ending? These big questions rather than who is reading from the pre-prepared notes. You have people bleating on about the fact that the person who's giving the press briefing has a penis. And I mean, even if they did put up Pretty Patel, as I mentioned in my article this week, no one would like that either because she's the kind of witch of a woman that doesn't fit the script. But a more important point in relation to the culture war that I was thinking about is, and Frank Frazee mentioned this in his column this week, is that there's been a 
reemergence of or a discussion about class politics in this, but unfortunately at a very shallow level, almost at a kind of identity politics level. And Tom, I think you mentioned this as well in one of your articles, that Emily Maitlis sort of speech on Newsnight and alongside all the other kind of outpourings of love and respect and you know praise for the key workers, the essential workers, mm. isn't really an intelligent and politically active assessment of the true class divides that are happening in this. You know, the fact that the narrative around lockdown and the panic around it is run by predominantly middle-class people who have back gardens to hole away in at the expense of working-class people who are not necessarily locked at home, but actually out filling the shelves. But instead, it's this kind of like, you have to remember to recognise the key workers. You know, actually, the word class doesn't get used. It's in this kind of weird paternalistic language. And that's proof of how entrenched identity politics is in the culture war is because you can't even make a clear distinction of this thing, class politics. It gets wrapped up in the language of personal experience, identity, and a kind of very patronising tone. So I'd like to say that there's hope for, and I sympathise with the kind of articles that have been written saying the seriousness of this pandemic should wipe out all the crap of politics that we've been dealing with. But that didn't happen with the Brexit debate, and that was a serious discussion about democracy, and it hasn't necessarily happened now when we're faced with this supposedly you know, life-ending pandemic. So we're going to have to think of a different way of challenging it. Tom? Well, I think um, there's some reasons to be cheerful insofar as um, there is a bit of an opening now because it has persisted. It's kind of exposed, as I was saying, like the on the one hand, the triviality of a lot of it. You know, there was a piece that went up on the Huffington Post this week. Um, I teach at Oxford, but I don't want it to win the coronavirus vaccine race, uh, essentially <laughs> making the argument that it would be a terrible shame if Oxford actually cracked the vaccine because it would somehow burnish a sense of um, national chauvinism and patriotism <laughs> um, mm. and demonstrate that the Brits had saved the world, you know, whilst all these people in the mysterious East had, you know, brought us low. The ridiculousness of that is self-evident. And I think, you know, the desire that the narrative comes before any other consideration, you know, is, is pretty, is pretty remarkable. Over human life, even. Exactly. Well, so it seems. And on the, on the other side of that, you've also got the nastiness of it. You know, what was it? At least a week ago now, but the, um, you clap for me now campaign slash video, mm. which was this, um, group of people who got together were, um, NHS workers, key workers, um, of migrant backgrounds. It was this poem that someone had written effectively kind of saying, you know, all of you nasty racists in Britain, you know, the people who told us to go home and the people who told us this and that. And you know, now you rely on us. And it was so obvious that the undertone of all of that was not a kind of pro-migrant, pro-worker message. It wasn't, you don't share that to show solidarity with them. You share it to show your disgust of ordinary people who are often imagined in the, in the minds of a lot of people in the media and the cultural elite as that kind of mob, you know, as that kind of racist, bigoted mob. Um, and I think the fact that you're seeing people try to kind of score those kinds of really cheap, ugly, divisive, identitarian points, even in the midst of something as serious as all of this at least gives us that little bit of an opening to demonstrate, as I say, not just the triviality of it, but also the nastiness of it as far as it's still trying to kind of divide us up and to play with these kinds of grievances, even in the midst of what is a very, very serious health, social and economic crisis. You're listening to The Spike Podcast Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. 
If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. Countries around the world have been placed under lockdown in order to stem the spread of coronavirus. The lockdowns come at enormous cost, not only for the economy, but also for civil liberties, our social lives and potentially for health too. But is there any evidence that they're working? Not every country has taken the same approach, and in the US, policies vary on a state-by-state basis. That should allow us to compare the results. Wilfred Riley joins us down the line for this section. Wilfred is an Associate Professor of Political Science at Kentucky State University and author of Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. Uh, Wilfred, you wrote an excellent piece for Spike this week where you looked very closely at the data and ran a regression analysis looking at infections and deaths in different US states. Um, Can you tell us a bit about your findings? Sure. I mean, in one sentence, what I found, and this, this is, of course, preliminary. There are a couple of different ways to do this. But what I found is that shutting down as opposed to simply practicing social distancing does not seem to have what we'd call a statistically significant effect on the number of coronavirus cases or deaths in a state. And the way I come to that conclusion, in the USA, we're an intensely federalist nation, obviously. And there are a number of states, uh, Arkansas, Nebraska, Utah, North Dakota, South Dakota, uh, you could argue South Carolina, a couple of others that never issued uh, what are called SIP orders, shelter in place shutdown orders. And I compared those states in terms of numbers of COVID cases and deaths to those states that did shut down. I did that at three levels. First, I just looked at the number of cases and deaths across the uh, lockdown states versus the social distancing states. On average, the non-lockdown states had 1,631 cases of COVID and uh, 33 deaths versus 8,408 cases and 342 deaths for the uh, states that were in lockdown. And that's with New York, which is an outlier taken out of the sample. The thing that might be said there, obviously, is, well, Utah and so on, aren't the social distancing states on average smaller than the non-social distancing states? So the next step there was to look strictly at COVID cases and deaths per million with population formally adjusted for. That was about a page of the piece. And what I see there is that in terms of cases per million, The uh, social distancing alone states had 729 cases per million and 12 deaths per million, whereas the states that were in lockdown had 1,392 cases per million and 54 deaths per million. And again, the more data here, the better. You can look at this from a couple of angles. Are states that were hit hard early on more likely to lock down? But I don't necessarily think we see all that much evidence even of that. I mean, there's a huge political element to this. And I mean, for example, I noticed that Montana wasn't on my list of social distancing states. There are a number of states with very few cases that did lock down. So overall, if you compare the social distancing states to the lockdown states, you don't see massive differences. And in fact, the differences you do see, which are fairly large, favor the social distancing states over the lockdown states. A final step here... I ran a regression model, a linear regression model in the stat package program Stata, 
where I looked at the effect of uh, population, population density, median age, median income, and diversity, which I define as minority population percentage, as well as the strategy that a state used to fight COVID, whether that was social distancing or lockdown, on the number of cases and deaths. And there were certainly some things that were significant in there. Population was pretty strongly significant. How many people you have being blunt predicts how many COVID cases and deaths you're going to have, perhaps no matter what strategy you follow. Density was not significant, but was sort of on that verge. I mean, places like New York City, unfortunately, are going to be harder hit. But strategy, again, with everything adjusted for, I think pretty competently run model, although not perfect, uh, had no effect whatsoever. So we do have to ask the question, when you compare it not to, you know, holding outdoor dance parties or something idiotic, but to the kind of social distancing you see in Sweden or South Korea, do lockdowns work? I don't think we see a massive amount of evidence for that. Tom, Will, I wanted to ask you about um, Professor Neil Ferguson of our own Imperial College London, about his findings and his kind of role in, in pushing a lot of places towards lockdown. As people remember, he predicted that without any mitigation in the UK, we'd be looking at half a million deaths. The US would be looking at 2.2 million. If there were some mitigation efforts, the kind of things that the UK was originally doing, that'd come down by about half in both of those cases. The conclusion being there needed to be more suppression, there needed to be more lockdown. I think a lot of people in Britain have become quite familiar with him because he's kind of quickly attained this status as a kind of unchallengeable oracle. But um, I think people won't necessarily be as aware of how much kind of global impact he's had on the kind of change of policy and the discussion in the US and elsewhere. So I just wondered what you made of his findings in particular. Ferguson's a skilled methodologist, but I don't think that a lot of people took a look at the secondary level at that paper. There were three assumptions that led to that 2.2 million uh, figure. One was that 80% of people would get COVID-19, would contract the disease, as I recall. I'm not an epidemiologist, but that seems uh, wildly out of line with past serious flu seasons and so on. I mean, we saw, for example, the Diamond Princess, a U.S. flagged uh, cruise ship that saw an outbreak of COVID-19. And this is a self-contained boat. And by the time that epidemic had run its course was over, you'd seen 17 percent infection on the ship. So if you assume, for example, 20 or even 25 percent infection rather than 80 percent, that dramatically changes those figures. Ferguson also assumed a CFR, a death rate of roughly 1 percent, which at the time seemed very reasonable. Again, now that we're seeing large in serological testing from countries like Germany, we're seeing actual CFRs of, say, 0.3 percent. I don't want to get too wonky here, but again, you have to assume, say, the CFR is 0.25 or 0.4 rather than 1. That, again, dramatically changes these projections. And finally, the 2.2 million figure came in a scenario where no mitigation whatsoever occurred. The most basic level of mitigation, if you actually read Ferguson's paper, which is a good paper, uh, which would be quarantining sick people, that sort of thing, would cut that in half or by more than 50 percent. So I think that what happened was that a lot of politicians saw these initial projections at 2 million, 2.5 million, and did not want to be the person associated with that sort of toll. And I don't think they necessarily dug very deep. Uh, if you take the figures 20 percent, 0.3% and a projection of substantial mitigation as opposed to 80% 
1% and no mitigation, you're talking about a very, very different scenario. And that's what you're actually seeing in countries like Sweden or South Korea that have remained open. I mean, Sweden has a slightly higher cases per million rate than Norway or Denmark, but there are not not to be glib, but you know, corpses in the street in Malmo or Stockholm. Mm. So I, I think that those initial projections terrified people, to be frank. I think there was an extreme fear reaction to that. And that's understandable. But as we see more and more data, the question is, do we maintain that posture, that extremely defensive posture? Ella, your question. Yeah, I wanted to ask about, I mean, the fact is we still don't know a huge amount about this virus. We're learning more every day, but the public is still very much in the dark. And I'd hazard the guess that most scientists and virologists that are looking at this are still relatively in the dark. But as we move forward and learn more about it, will we then know more about why lockdowns haven't worked? And sort of within that is the thing that I'm a bit nervous about is the fact that scientific breakthroughs and cures and all these things that have happened in history always have an element of mistake and you know hindsight is a wonderful thing so you know where's the balance on that and will this all become clear later on and do we kind of just have to wait for it or should we be doing something now well i think that there are a lot of things that we are doing and that we should be doing to me i tend to take actual data a lot more seriously than scientific modeling or scientific projection and i think anyone that's done scientific modeling at the academic or junior scholar or college student level understands why this is one of the things that i'm seeing right now that i'm very interested in is the results set from actual serological testing in europe uh, for whatever reason, the Europeans seem to be doing a much better job than we Americans at this. Uh, in Germany, there was a fairly large in study that looked at the percentage of people that had uh, COVID-19 antibodies that had had COVID-19 at some point. This was a random or near random sample. Uh, it turned out that 15 percent of people, and I believe Bonn, had already contracted COVID-19 at some point. A fair percentage of them, more than 2 percent, still had it. And the CFR for the disease, the fatality rate, was between 0.3% and 0.4%, with 0.4% at the very high end. And we've seen this over and over again. A similar study in Iceland from Decode Genetics, which had a very low false positive rate. I mean, the study initially found that only 0.86% of Icelanders had COVID-19, so it couldn't be off by very much. Not long after that, found that 7% of people in Iceland had contracted COVID-19. So I think one of the things we're very consistent, there's a similar study in the Vo uh, region of Italy, which inspired a paper from Stanford University, three to four percent of Italians had COVID or had had it at some point. But I mean, one of the things we're seeing with these studies is that the actual fatality rate for COVID-19, I can't emphasize this enough, is almost certainly orders of magnitude lower than the fatality rate that we're seeing only among the very symptomatic, sick people who've been in contact provably with someone with COVID that have been able to take the official test. So that kind of mm -hmm. real data, I think, is one thing that we are learning about the virus. I think that in terms of just a practical variable, I mean, I would say something like 45% of businesses in the USA are considered essential businesses. In a typical day, if I wanted to go to Walmart, if I wanted to do my shopping at Kroger or Whole Foods or another you know, upper middle class grocery store, if I wanted to get my car fixed, go to the gym in many states, I would have no problem doing that whatsoever. 
So, I mean, again, has anyone empirically looked at whether concentrating 70% the same number of people in 45% the number of businesses, in fact, reduces transmissions? I don't, I don't know if that's been done. One thing we are learning about this virus is that the highest contagion environment seems to be inside a building with limited air circulation with a number of other people. So if you're in a situation, say a blue collar family, two people are essential employees, you interact with 100 people, then come home to your grandmother and your kids. I'm not certain that that's a lower infection environment than you'd be experiencing if those kids were in high school in an airy classroom. So what would a kind of effective, less costly policy look like then, in your view, given that we know how damaging lockdown can be and potentially is not having the effect that we want it to? I mean, I do think as a matter of personal opinion that we obviously see uh, alternative models in operation. I mean, I, I said this in spite. This is a thing we can notice. There are large regions from Utah to Sweden to much of East Asia, although they got a better running start than the West did, that have not locked down. And again, you don't see bodies littering the streets or something like that. I mean, they're very functional and Arkansas, Nebraska, Iowa. I think that in terms of how a social distancing model would work, you probably see that at Kroger or Tesco. I mean, people are encouraged to keep six feet apart. Uh, if you have a mask, you might feel a little goofy with that thing on, but there's no reason not to wear it. Sanitize your hands if you have an interaction with another individual, possibly. I mean, the small bottles of sanitizer or urban prop in the States, as I suspect they are in many places. And there are things you can do if you want to go beyond that. I mean, some local businesses have put up what you could call spit shields for cashiers and the like, so that you can have a conversation with someone. There's a whole cut in the thing. It's you know, pass money through. It's not ideal, but it's not particularly ridiculous. But that would prevent the primary mode of COVID transmission. And there are other things that the U.S. CDC has recommended, for example, many of which are not particularly invasive at all. I uh, have a separate entrance and egress or exit from buildings, for example. That actually works extremely well. I mean, you'll see a line of people, salary men and women in suits go in and then later on come out in another direction. You don't see that passage by people shaking hands and talking football and so on that you normally would. Uh, and that, I'm sure, reduces transmission. So all of those things that you see in an exurban area in Sweden or in Utah would be what you would be doing. I, I do want to say, I don't, there's an attempt to portray uh, individuals that say this, that say, well, you know, we see large Western and Asian regions that are doing this. There's no reason we couldn't do it as sort of deniers of COVID-19. And that's, that's not the case. I'm, I'm obviously not saying, I don't think any of you are, you know, the virus is a hoax or something like that. Go stage a large rally <laughs> in public. No, I mean, I, I think that the sort of basic social distancing you see at the store would be very easy to do throughout society for the next couple of months as we work things out. And a uh, final point here, at some point, we're going to have to make this decision. In the USA, and I believe Britain, for good ethical reasons, if you look at history, there's a 12 to 18 month process around the development of a new vaccine. So when people say, well, I favor lockdowns to save lives, the question is, well, do you favor these lockdowns for the 18 months that legally and ethically we would have to spend to get a new vaccine from Gilead or whoever onto the market? Because that's what's being discussed. If that's not what's being proposed, at any point when we reopen, these same questions are going to be back on the table, right? I mean, so if we 
delay this until, I mean, this to, logically would be one of the best times to do this. I mean, we're entering the month of May. We're entering what's called the high summer lull for many of these diseases. If we were to postpone this conversation to September, I don't see any possible reason that would be a healthier environment to reopen in. So at some point, we're going to have to do this. Governments are going to run out of money and the vaccine very likely still won't be on the table. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher and more. And if your provider allows you to, why not give us a rating and a review while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. It's fair to say that celebrities have not had a good war. When the outbreak first began, Wonder Woman star Gal Gadot teamed up with other big names for a socially distanced sing-along of John Lennon's Imagine. She told us from her mansion that we're all in this together. Madonna has also been producing near-daily video updates from a bathtub covered in rose petals. Sam Smith has acted out the stages of quarantine meltdown on Instagram, which culminated in him appearing to cry outside his £12 million London house. Idris Elba, who had coronavirus, has called for the world to be quarantined for one week every year to help us remember this time. Ella, what's the point of celebrities in a time like this? <laughs> what's the point of celebrities at any point, unless they're performing on your screen? I mean, the good news is that most people are calling out celebrities for doing this. So there was mass not just criticism, but piss-taking at the Imagine video. Ricky Gervais has come out and criticised some of his fellow celebrities. There was also a mock video of Imagine that came out from some other celebrities who are slightly more aware of how ridiculous this all is. But this is nothing new. You know, this is only what you would expect from people who are so rich that they've forgotten what it's like to be a normal person. I mean, every year we get this with award shows, you know, at the Oscars or Academy Awards, people wear t-shirts that say statements. They, you know, make feminist speeches from the platform. They tell us that, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio and others, that we have to stop living our lives because we're wrecking the planet. I mean, celebrities always use their platform not to spread good messages as they think, but to essentially show off how politically right on they think they are. But the interesting thing is that actually the reason why this is happening and the reason why they get so much traction, it's not because we're all particularly interested in what Hayley Bieber and Justin Bieber have to say, who put out a video you know, talking about how difficult it must be for everyone dealing with coronavirus lockdown, but because there's this kind of void in sort of authoritative viewpoints. You know, we have politicians who, yes, sometimes say pretty good stuff, but most of the time don't have that sense of having any real authority. We've got a whole other problem with our relationship with experts. And so what happens? You have this kind of space that gets filled up by the guff of celebrities. I mean, the re-emergence of the royals of Kate and William at this point has been really interesting. You know, this is an institution that's faced an incredible amount of scandal and crisis in the last year from Harry and Meghan's bizarre departure to the totally, not just scandalous, but perhaps criminal relationships that Prince Andrew had with uh, certain 
paedophilic individuals. And yet they've managed to bounce back and come forward as a voice of a reason from the Queen or a voice of support in terms of mental health advice from Kate and William. And you just have to think, what's going on? Why are we looking to people whose job it is in terms of the royals just to be there or in terms of singers and songwriters and actresses to entertain us? And it really think comes down to that actually quite serious point of there being this lack of authority in public discussion. And so it's a good thing that we are not taking these people seriously, but the fact that they, their voice keeps getting raised above the crowd is a problem because it'd be infinitely more interesting and informative to hear the opinion on the lockdown of your local cashier, who's had a much more of a hands-on experience of this crisis and this lockdown than a member of the Kardashians who's locked away in some mansion in Calabasas. Tom? Well, I think in a way, the whole crisis could serve to be quite a lesson for a lot of um, celebrities insofar as demonstrating the limits of their appeal and the limits of what we actually want them to do. You know, it's kind of interesting <laughs> because of the lockdowns, because people can't make TV shows, they can't make films, they can't perform live. They're, they've kind of been stripped of everything that actually gives them their status and their glamour and, and why we're interested in them, you know. Um, and so all they're left with is Twitter. All they're left with is social media. All they're left with is Instagram. And all they're left with is these kind of like airheaded statements, which often in an attempt to sound empathetic, can I just demonstrate their own privileges? You know, the, the bath full of rose petals being a perfect example. Madonna talking about how coronavirus is the great leveller while surrounded <laughs> by, you know, all these bath oils. It's really quite striking, but I think in a way it just sort of it sort of demonstrates the fact that, um, you know, I think the thing that's really wound a lot of people up about celebrity in recent years is not the idea of celebrity itself in a kind of sneering, you know, why do people listen to these idiots type way? It's just because celebrities have constantly felt like they need to overstep the mark, that it, it was some sort of moral duty to, you know, hold forth on the important issues of the day when, frankly, we don't go to them for that and to do so in an incredibly hectoring fashion. So in a way, you kind of hope that the backlash some of these people have received will sort of demonstrate um you know why it is that people like them and it's because they're talented individuals glamorous individuals and it's not because they see them as these kind of like godlike people who can tell us how to live and how and how to be good people that said i think um one thing that was kind of driven home by the world health organization's little um over the internet concert they organised and, you know, your man Tedros from the WHO saying he just got off a call with Lady Gaga about it um, and everyone taking the mick out of that is celebrities, bless them, have been invited to play this kind of role yeah. by some quite serious people. Uh, you know, the UN in particular and the WHO as a, as a um, part of that, they've been terrible for this, for the kind of, you know, bonoization of, of politics and of um, big important issues. Bred often of a pretty negative view of the public, which is that they need celebrities to talk about these issues in order for them to care about them, um, in order for them to take them seriously. So yes, hopefully all of this will put celebrities back in their box a little bit, but it's also been a bit of a demonstration of the fact that they were invited to play this role in the first place because of those big institutions felt that they couldn't connect with ordinary people, so they needed kind of mass culture as a kind of intermediary, bred off this idea that, you know, we idiots wouldn't take this stuff seriously without that. Ella? There was a time that celebrities and, you know, especially singers, rock stars, people who were famous did take political lines and did make an impact. I'm thinking about people like one of my favourite 
artists, Paul Simon, who worked with Ladysmith Black Mombasa during the apartheid, a South African male choir, going against the time of, of boycott and divestment groups who said that you shouldn't be involved in anyone in South Africa and actually celebrating Black South Africans um, and their talent. And that was incredibly impactful, incredibly controversial. And, you know, that was him stepping out of his role as an artist um, and taking a political line. And you can think of thousands of examples of that when it's been effective. The difference today is, you know, especially with something like the pandemic, you know, no one's using their platform to ask interesting questions about whether or not the lockdown is effective, as we've just been talking about on this podcast. But also it's what they're saying is actually nothing. We have to, it's coming back to that empty message of the stay home, save lives, save the NHS. It's this very passive thing. And so then, you know, it's not any kind of political intervention. It's not really helping the public to see these celebrities performing really quite bad renditions of their bad songs on these terrible (laughs) makeshift online concerts. I mean, I really can't watch another fundraising, awareness raising, happy clappy crap from the BBC with all these awful pop stars on it. You know, if someone did break out of this and spoke out and said something interesting, I might not feel so scathing about celebrities, but while they're all continuing to go along the same boring lines, but just from different uh, well-decked out houses, I don't have any interest in it. You've been listening to The Spiked Podcast. For more Spiked content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.